Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, This morning's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 5 through chapter 12, verses 14. It can be found starting on page 559 in the Bible under your seat. Ecclesiastes 11.5 through 12.14. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high. And terrors are in the way, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether evil or good, or good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I don't know about about you, but I I love that there's poetry like that in our scriptures. Like, um, I just get swept away by the language there, and... um, just hope that we, that we can come to an appreciation of, of that as well, to enjoy the Scripture as, as great uh, literature. Um, so, uh, 
Today we're preaching on Ecclesiastes. This is going to be, um, we're going to kind of treat it like flyover country, right? So uh, we're going to peer out the window of the airplane. We're going to get an idea of what the landscape is like. But really, uh, my hope is that um, this will give you some idea of what the ground is like so that you can then go and, and walk the roads, right? Go home, sit in your favorite chair, pour yourself a cup of tea, and really sit with this book. Um, this sermon will just kind of set uh, the expectations of what you may find. Um, for, for me personally, uh, this is one of, particularly in the, in the past couple years, um, this is one of, if not the um, most formative books um, in the scriptures for me, um, which either is great news for this sermon or it's terrible news for this sermon. So I'm going to try to resist the impulse to be like, all right, here's another aside. Let's look at this tiny detail that doesn't really contribute to the main point. Like, so... Um, yeah, we'll, we'll dive in, but let's start with uh, a word of prayer. Lord, we, uh, we do thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, for its, um, for its realism, um, for its unflinching look at, uh, um, at the uncertainty of life, at the uncertainty of life, um, as well as its ultimate call to joy. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be a people who can humbly receive from you. Um, Amen. So um, let's let's uh, let's start with this. Um, I think that this book is, is a pretty natural um, thing to consider after Job. Right, the ending of Job happens, and and we realize that the answer to suffering is not available to us. Right, Job humbles himself before the Lord and, and realizes that he's not going to get the ultimate answer to, to his suffering nor to suffering in general. Um, and so Ecclesiastes, in many ways, is, um, is dealing with the very same tension and instead is trying to ask, so how do we live? If we don't have an answer to suffering, actually the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is going to extend it even farther. We don't have the answer to life. We don't have the key to, to life, how to find satisfaction, how to make the, like, the, this thing work. Um, so how do we live? What, what does it mean to, to live well, um, to live in a godly way in the middle of uncertainty? So th- think back for a second to, um, when, you were, to when you were younger. Um, think a kid. What were your expectations of life back then? Like, what did you imagine your future to be? And then compare where you are right now to that moment. Does it line up? Are you at a good place, a bad place? And, and what would you, the kid you think about where you've come in life? If you're at a good place, can you look back and honestly say that you've arrived where you are because of intentional, deliberate steps on your part? Like you, like you got here because you got yourself here. Or did a whole bunch of stuff come out of left field and suddenly you found yourself in a good place? And if that's true, what, what, what are the implications of that? Because that means when the future comes, uh, like if, if you're dealing honestly, honestly with this and you realize like, man, there's, there's a lot that came out of left field. I did not make this for myself. Um, then there's a strong possibility that the future will come um, and there's nothing that you can do to prevent it from going south. I think there's a whole bunch of, of us here as well who, who reflect and, and say, like, how did I get here? How did I become the person that I am? 
I, I wasn't supposed to, to be this way. And so life for a lot of us is just utterly bewildering, um, just confusing from top to bottom. There's, there's no principle that we've found where suddenly we have life under our fingers and we can kind of control it. Like, like can you relate to this? Are you with me on this? Or am I alone? Like, I feel like this is pretty, pretty common to our experience. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we have this fear of, of coming to, the, to le- the last couple weeks of our lives and reflecting back and just desperately wishing for a redo. Um, and yet knowing that if we were given the chance, like, we wouldn't know how to change it. Life is too uncertain. So where do we go to find meaning and beauty when the world is not how it's supposed to be? The preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's, he's dealing with the same questions. Um, it, it's helpful to think of the whole book as kind of like a poetic memoir. So we tend to read a lot of the scriptures almost as though, like, Paul wrote everything. You know, it's all just like a, a treatise working through the whole— so, but instead, in Ecclesiastes, this is an artist, and he's sort of artfully rendering his life so that we're supposed to walk through this journey with him as we, as we go along. Um, and essentially, this journey that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is on um, is the journey in search of satisfaction, of meaning, of some way to kind of say, I get it now. I get life. I understand it. Um, in fact, uh, why don't we just... We're, we're, we are going to spend time in um, the section that Andrew read. I want you to keep it in mind, keep the sound of it in mind. Um, but we're actually going to spend some time here at the beginning in chapters 1 and 2. So just page a couple pages back. Um, I'd like us to start here for a little while. We're not going to go chapter by chapter, um, but it, it's a very cyclical book, so you're going to get an impression of the rest of the book just from these opening chapters as well. So right there in, in chapter 1, verse 13... The preacher lays out his, his task, his task for the book. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So I'm, I'm guessing this is going to take him like an afternoon, probably, right? <laughs> like, so he's out for the meaning of life, right? That's what he is seeking, this huge journey. And over the course of the book, I mean, it's a whirlwind where he, he witnesses violence and oppression and just confusion and successes, but like not successes that could be, that are from predictable results that could be then done again. It's just sort of, oh, that, I guess that happened. And then, so it's this, it's this huge journey. Um, so we're just going to walk through it with him and then uh, reflect on it for, for our own lives. But pay special attention to this. You've heard where he kind of ends, um, that yes, there's, there's darkness, but the, the ending ultimately is the sense of, um, of hope and, um, and whatever. And, and so I want you to keep that in mind. And then now consider where he begins. Because the key of the book is not where he starts. The key of the book is not where it ends. The key of the book is how he gets there. So the key of the book is not where it starts or ends, but how he gets there. And that's, that's what we're going to be driving at, God willing, today. Um, so where does he begin? He looks out, he observes the world, he's taken on this quest, and what does he conclude? Everything is, this should be, I mean, this is like the big thing that we're all familiar with, everything is vanity. Um, so he says, what is, you know, what has been made crooked cannot be made straight. Um, another piece of, of gorgeous poetry. This is just reflecting on the world after the fall. Um, the world has been bent. None of us can make it straight. It cannot be made straight. The world is crooked. 
and the result is vanity. So um, I'm going to get nerdy with you for a second, so just bear with me because it's, it's so important. Um, there's nothing wrong with our Bibles. There are some things wrong with the English language. There are certain words that just do not come across well uh, in English. Like, there just isn't, you know, got it. Like, that's not what we have for the word vanity. That same word, it's hevel um, in Hebrew. Um, depending on who you ask, it has meant enigmatic, vain, meaningless, transient, fleeting. Um, ultimately, it's a metaphorical word. So it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. Um, the literal translation is smoke, vapor. So everything is vapor. So for, for the purposes of the sermon, um, I'm not going to use the term vanity. I'm going to use the term hevel. Um, it's one of those situations where it would almost be more effective for the translators just to put in the Hebrew word because it's so, so such a big idea. It's hard to just say, okay, vanity is it. Especially in our day and age, like when we hear the word vanity, we picture like an it girl tossing her hair or something or like guys who spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. Um, so it's just, it's less helpful, right? Um, so think hevel. Think vapor, smoke. What that means is that life is, have you ever tried to grab steam? It just like passes through your fingers. You can't grasp it. You can't pin it down. You can't box it. It just dissipates. And so, and so it's not a like inherently negative term. In Ecclesiastes, it's mostly a negative term. Um, but just by virtue of what it is, it's not inherently negative. It's actually a neutral term. Um, Everything is vapor. You can't grasp it. It's important to see that it's neutral because as the book develops, it takes on more and more of a neutral meaning. Um, it's less negative and starts to, to morph as we walk through this journey where, there, yes, there are ways in which Hevel is bad, but in some ways it's just, it just is. Um, so keep that in mind. That's hugely important to, to the book, and um, any latecomers are just going to be really, really confused about what I mean by hevel. Um, take a sip of tea real fast. So the preacher looks and he concludes that everything is utterly hevel. Um, every time you, ha- you think of a grasp on life, it slips through your fingers time and again. He points out that our destinies are in God's hands. So he's pointing out the sovereignty of God, very similar to Job. Um, good and evil, it, in some mysterious way, it's, it's originating from from God, and so everything is in God's hands. Everything is unknowable, uncertain, because only he knows, so it's hevel. So he he doesn't come upon this information accidentally. Um, Instead, uh, again, there's a poetic memoir. Much of what what he shares with us comes from this journey he undertakes um, to try to find the meaning of life in different spheres. Um, Here in the first couple chapters, those, those areas are wisdom, pleasure, and work. And so he just tries to, to just dig into these different areas, searching to see whether the key to life is, is in each of those or one of them. So let's just tackle them for, for a couple minutes. Like, let's just take wisdom, pleasure, and work and, and consider what the preacher has to tell us. So wisdom first. This is skillful living. Um, he returns to this theme over and over and over in the book. Um, he seems to be interacting with Proverbs uh, and with kind of the wisdom literature of the scriptures, but he's bringing something else to the conversation. So kind of like how Job interacts with Proverbs and wants to say like, yeah, you would expect that the righteous would 
would prosper and that if you're suffering, it's because you're wicked. Instead, Job turns that on its head. Ecclesiastes is going to do something similar with the certainty of life, with the, the certainty of Proverbs. Uh, like, Proverbs are not promises. Um, instead, life is ultimately unpredictable. Wisdom is better than foolishness, but has to be put in its place. Um, so, what does he say the result of wisdom is? Let's check out verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. In much wisdom is much vexation. That's a surprise. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why is that? So, let's consider this. Let's say you, you live your life abiding by every single proverb. You, you live a perfectly wise life. I mean, you never deviate from, from the path of wisdom. Everything that you do is dead on. Um, what does that actually guarantee you? Does it actually give you a grasp on life? It's kind of like when you're driving. Like, I can follow the rules of the road very, very well. I, perfectly, even. You know, like, where somehow I manage to be at exactly 50 miles per hour when that's what the mileage sign tells me to do. Um, so I can follow the rules of the road, but I'm not in control to the point that I can say everyone else will. That, like, my safety on the road doesn't just depend on me. There are outside circumstances. There are other drivers. Or here in Lake County, right, guys, inclement weather, huge factor, ready for winter. So, um, but wisdom, even if you were to follow it perfectly, there are way too many outside circumstances that can disrupt your life going the direction that it ought if things were the way they're supposed to be. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And let's be honest with ourselves, too. Are we perfectly following wisdom? Can we actually say that about ourselves? And so at the end, there is frustration. There's this effort to try to find some idea that will make sense of all of life, some principle that if I just follow this, I can predict what's coming ahead for me. I can control life. It won't throw me any curveballs. And maybe for you, like, are you a TED Talk junkie? Are you constantly intaking ideas? What's driving you to do that? Other than the desire to have some sort of a grasp on life that will make sure you, you never get pitched a curveball. Instead, I think when we're honest with ourselves, we, we realize that um, a lot of times that's exactly what we get pitched, the curveball. And so there's frustration in pursuing ideas, you come to this place where it's like, I think this is it. If I, if I do this, if I think this, life's going to get better, and then it's frustrated. And the, the example that he brings up later on is, hey, the wicked prosper, man. Like, there are righteous people, and they're righteous, um, but they die young. Do we have room in our thinking for that? Um, and he does assure us frequently that like, God makes things right at the end, so he doesn't forget that. But he does want us to point out that here in this broken world, in this crooked world, the righteous die young, the wicked sometimes die in wealth. And even if you did live a perfectly wise life, here's the biggie, eventually you die. So we're going to touch on that in a second. So just bear with me. I know this is tough. We're going to do two more and then... Another really depressing thing, and then we're going to see the ship. So, um, 
but this is honesty, right? Like, I, I, I want us to, I want to break the tension a little bit, but um, I also want us to see that he's dead on. Like, this is the way the world is. That he's being honest with what it's like to, to follow the Lord. This is honesty. So let's, uh, you know, I, I want us to, to sit in it. Um, I will do my best to break the tension because I love you guys, but we, we do have to see what he's pointing out. So next he, he tackles pleasure. Um, so the preacher is a king over Jerusalem. He's profoundly wealthy, profoundly wealthy. And so he realizes that, okay, wisdom's not going to get to me. I can't find the key to life in wisdom. So maybe the, the, the way to be, be satisfied as a human being is through pleasure. That, like, what's really causing my pain is that there are des- desires in me that, that are not met. And that I, that I will find satisfaction, I'll find joy, I'll find peace if all my desires are met. And so he goes... Um, very consciously, wisely, like his wisdom never leaves him, but he goes full out. So, um, you know, he throws away the Behringer, and he buys Opus X, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Silver Oak. He stocks his cellars. He has the best wine, the best food, um, just feasts constantly. Um, whatever he, he wants to, to eat, he has it. Um, he, he builds himself gardens and homes and, and parks. Can you imagine having that much control over your living space? Like, if just everywhere you lived, it looked like a Pinterest pin. Like, I think that sometimes, but right, like, those aesthetics of life, sometimes we, we think to ourselves, like, man, I'll, I'd be a little bit happier if my place looked better. You know, like, I'll, I'll find, I'll be less stressed if I can just clean and organize a little bit more here. So he has full control over all that. And then finally, you know, he, he brings up having many concubines. I'm in, I'm in the opening of chapter two right now. He brings up having many concubines. So he, he is so wealthy that there is no dowry he can't afford. So in other words, he doesn't know what it's like for one to get away. No one is out of his league. He's able to, to, to like there's, there's anybody that he desires, he doesn't know what it's like not to be able to, to have that person. You know? So he completely satisfies whatever desire it is that he has. And what does he say at the end of it? Hevel. It's all hevel. That I, like, I had to work so hard to make this pleasure possible, and at the end of the day, the cost did not equal the return. The accounts didn't balance. It wasn't pleasurable enough. You get the sense that sort of like when you fill yourself up on Fruit Loops, like you are full, you are full, but your stomach is still growling. You're full, but you're not satisfied, Right? Like, on some level, this, like, you, you just feel the, the depression even before he announces Hevel over it. You feel that, like, but this isn't it. I can tell that you're missing it, and then he, he goes to despair. So I, I don't know what, what that is for you. I think, honestly, we should be able to relate to this in a deep way. Like, maybe intellectually we say to ourselves, like, oh, I know that pleasure won't, won't satisfy me. But how often do you say, man, if I just didn't have to live on this tight of a budget? Like, if there were just a few more times where I could just not think that much before I purchased something, or, or when I purchased something, not suffer that much afterward, it would just be a more peaceful way of living. Or would it? Or, or, or maybe, cons- for, for those of us who are married, like, consider sex. Like, man, if, if, if only we were more passionate, more 
like frequent, more just together, intimate, more um, emotive, that, then I think I'd be, I'd be happy. I think we know that there is no experience that makes it so we never desire again. Hevel. It's all trying to grasp steam, and it slips through our fingers. But let's posit, just for one second, that you do actually live a 100% pleasurable life. Top to bottom, what happens at the end? You die. We're going to come back to that. All right, one more. Work. So at 2.18, he turns to work. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. So he, he's considering all this labor that he's done. He already says that he works like a dog, um, and that for a time he was doing that to facilitate pleasure, but now he's turned his attention to the work itself. Like, so maybe it's not, like, so far I've been living for the weekend. Like, I tried working for the weekend. What if I work to work? Like, what if I try to find the deepest meaning in my work, try to, to make my, my work most meaningful? And, and it seems... For him, that he sees that as, I want to do something that leaves a legacy. Like, it, it can't terminate at five when I go home. I want to be working for something that will affect people for generations and generations. And he realizes that there is no way he can guarantee that. That at some point, he has to turn this thing over to somebody else, and that that guy might not care. Or he might be really dumb. And his legacy can be completely annihilated by the successor. And some of you might be dying for meaning in your work. And again, like, I want to emphasize this. I do not want you to walk away thinking that wisdom, pleasure, or work are bad. Like, that's not what Ecclesiastes is communicating. So just hear me on that. It's a good thing to find meaning in your work, but understand its limits. You will not find ultimate meaning in your work. Where, you know, I think for, for a lot of folk, we think if I can just get the right job, then life can kind of start for me in some ways. Spend so much time at my work. If I can just find something better, then life can kind of start. I mean, like, do you relate on this? Can you, can you see where, where he's coming from? The, the, the preacher is here to say, it's all Hevel. But even if, even if you landed the perfect job, too, like, who's to say you won't be fired? And even if you landed the perfect job and kept it your whole life and never had to fear even being fired, um, what happens at the end? You die. So, as you noticed, the common thing, the thing most responsible for Hevel and all these spheres of life is death. So, this is tough, but I, I do want us to just sit in this for a second. Death overshadows everything. And I think we can look at what the preacher experiences and think, like, okay, yeah. Like, death overshadows everything, whatever. Um, but isn't it better? Like, if I could live a life where I'm completely wise, like following the Lord, fear, you know, I'm wise— it's a life full of nonstop pleasure, and it's a life where I'm finding meaning in my work. Like, at some level, didn't I get it? Like, didn't, like, I, I somehow found the key, you know? Um, and so isn't, isn't it better to, to have your, a life like that and then die rather than the alternative? And he would say, yeah, it is better, but not by much. 
I think the reason why this doesn't click with us, um, you know, I hate using the same quote twice, but the, the David Bentley Hart quote that we don't believe in death. Like we're not in touch enough with what death is like. Like life is not just an ongoing awesome roller. Like, you know, if we had this sort of life, it wouldn't be just some ongoing awesome roller coaster and then somebody just steps in and like hits the TV switch and we just blip out. Death does not happen that way. If you're young, you die by tragedy, illness, or violence. And for those of us who have watched folk walk through the final weeks of their life, much less the final years, death is awful. It's awful. If you've ever watched somebody go through the final weeks of hospice, even with all the pain management, it doesn't matter. If you've watched somebody die, like actually seen the moment when their eyes go glassy, they go pale. It's disturbing. It is disturbing. And so when we confront that, sorry, I'm getting emotional. When we confront that, I think we realize that, okay, that levels the field. Like, death is just too big. It's too big. So it doesn't matter how awesome your life was we're out of touch with how awful death is. Do you know what a body smells like? Like in, in the United States, we have found some very, very convenient ways to shove death into, into a closet, into a stainless steel drawer. Like we don't know what a body smells like. We are one of the first generations to not have that knowledge. The preacher's intimate with it. And so he is able to say, like, sure, life might be better with all these things, but not by much. Death is big. It's huge. So how, how do we find meaning when things are not how they're supposed to be? Have you ever had a meal so good you never hungered again? Have you ever had a piece of advice that was so good that you never had to rethink it? Have you ever worked a job so meaningful you're never bored of it? Have you ever stopped and noticed that underneath everything you're doing is this squirming angst, some unconscious sense that you're running out of time? Like, I, I have to fill, I have to experience this, I have to, to do this because there will come a time where I won't be able to anymore. And, and, and we're not even going to go, go, go you know, we're not going to go to the parts where he considers injustice because he goes there too, where he talks about oppression. You know, that, like all this, this is evil. Um, but he, he hasn't even gotten to human evil yet, to the horrors of what we do to each other. Um, he hasn't even gone there yet. I th- so I think, I think in, in light of like the recent London bombing, Irma, Harvey, we get that life is hevel maybe a little bit more than we ever have. So what does he tell us to do? Um, again, the, Ecclesiastes is a poetic memoir, so it, it reads differently. It's not as linear, like something that Paul would write. It's, it's not a strict narrative, so it, it is telling a story, but it's not like reading Genesis or one of the Gospels. And so um, instead it's more cyclical, so it, it returns again and again and again on um, on a couple major themes, but one in particular, and it's 
his advice, what he tells you to do in light of Hevel, and it sounds ridiculous. So in light of the Hevel of work, the Hevel of pleasure, the Hevel of, uh, of wisdom, in light of death, um, go and enjoy. Like, that's his advice. Like, doesn't that sound insane? Like, that should rock us when we, when we encounter that. Again and again and again, he comes around to, like, all right, guys, go enjoy it. Like, that's it. That's the, that's the advice that he gives. So, like, I, I want us to deal with how absurd that comes across, especially when we're, we're like, tracking with him. It comes up right at the end of chapter 2. That's the first time that it arises. And the whole book, I wish we could go through every single detail, um, but the, the whole book is like this tug-of-war where it's Hevel playing tug-of-war with, with joy. And so he'll say, like, so I, I commend joy. You know, enjoy your food. Enjoy the people around you. So he brings it up, and then the very next section, Hevel comes in and just stomps it. So the, the whole book is, is this back and forth between have joy, but then Hevel, and it comes and, and crushes it and, or whatever and goes back and forth. Um, and so I, I think the question that we're supposed to ask um, is how does he get to the ending? Because as the book progresses, and it's so cool, like go home and just like dig in. So like, uh, the way that progresses is the sections on joy become more and more detailed. Sometimes they just become longer. Sometimes he's adding more things to, to see joy in, and they're always simple. Um, where he, as the book progresses, um, it's almost as though he's becoming more and more fascinated by joy, and it never negates Hevel. Like, it's not like he finds a joy so awesome that, like, now life makes sense. He always understands that life is uncertain. It will not satisfy you ever. And yet, this joy, like, what is this? And so the, the whole time is this fascination until finally in that section that Andrew read, you get to this moment where um, the hevel gets consumed by the joy. Like, where it doesn't stamp out joy. Instead, the, the two just coexist. They just coexist. So that's sort of like the progression of the book, and it's so cool. Um, it's just, it's like masterful poetry. Um, so that's point B. We've talked about point A and point B, and so now we come to the big question. How does he get there? What is it? How does he take this? I mean, it's an unflinching look at the world, right? Like, and let it resonate with you. Let, let yourself agree that, like, he's got it right. He's got it right. The world is Hevel. It's just vapor. I can't. And then he has this point B, the joy. How did he arrive there? Um, this story may or may not be related, but I'm just going to share it anyway. So when I was um, nearing the end of college... Um, I was just so desperate to be done and uh, just go home, get a job, marry Ashley, and um, just had no money to, to even be like saving up for a ring or anything. So I picked up a job at, um, at NIU. I went to Northern in DeKalb. Um, so I picked up a job in uh, the call center, um, calling alumni to solicit donations. Uh, for the university, and it was super, super miserable. It was just awful. It was a terrible experience. So um, I, just, I was way too sensitive for it, and a lot of people can be very rude when they don't have to look you in the eye. Um, 
So at winter break on my last year, I requested to uh, be transferred into a, a different job, um, and this one, like, so a different, more desirable job. And I want you guys to to think about this: that this is the more desirable option out of the two. Um, so I got a job at the alumni records office, going through yearbooks from like 1950 to 1975, and for each individual alum, taking their name their year of graduation, their major, and uh, whatever additional activities they had done, like taking it from the yearbook and typing it into an Excel file for eight hours a day. It was just, it was just really bad, Um, but still more desirable than the call center. Um, But on top of that, on top of that, um, I I was a commuter. So, uh, like, I had an apartment with a couple of buddies off campus, so I had to park in the commuter lot. It was, was just under a mile away from the, the records office. And remember, I started at winter break. This was January in rural Illinois. It was cold. That was a cold walk. Um, but I want to share this with you. Like, um, I have only fond memories of that walk to the alumni office. Like, I felt warmed, and it was because... Um, for about a year, I had been um, attending this church plant in DeKalb um, and just had been through, through leadership there and some guys just discipling me. Um, discipleship is key. Um, I had just come to be reawakened to God's grace and to his sovereignty, to, to the way that he loves me, not because I'm attractive morally or um, because I'm just cool or whatever, um, just that he has given. He has just given grace. And something in that just struck me. Like his, his, his direction for life, his, and I just, I uh, just humbled myself to, to let the mysteries of that in some ways go to the side. And there are, there are intense mysteries. If we oversimplify that reality, we've missed the point of Scripture. But at the same time, we, we should never diminish it. God is sovereign, and he is gracious. And that just clicked with me. Um, and I was overjoyed. I experienced joy. I'd arrive at work at like 7. So I saw the sunrise every time on that walk, just rising up over campus as I was, I was nearing in just plains of snow, um, huddled in my coat and listening to music on my iPad, or iPod and... Um, and just warm. It's warm. I, th- I think that's at the heart of what happens to the preacher over the course of his journey. Like, think back to the beginning of his, of his whole quest. What was he trying to do? He's trying to figure out life. What is that really? He's trying to understand something that only God understands so he can control something that only God controls. When we figure, try to figure out life, we're trying to understand something that only God understands so we can control something only God controls. And over the, over the course of the, the book, he <clears throat> comes more and more in, you know, to confront the reality that we, we have no guarantees in life, and yet, what? So, so go with me to 11.5, uh, which is the passage that Andrew read.
So the concept of God's sovereignty comes up multiple times in the book. Um, this isn't the first time that it shows up. Like, nothing new occurs to the preacher. That's a complicated part of the story. Is it's that nothing new occurs to him, but he realizes its implications. Nothing, nothing, like, he doesn't adopt a new doctrine. Um, so he's on for the whole book. It's just that he gets what it means at the end. Um, so, you know, the, the famous, like, let your words be few when you come before it. So God is sovereign throughout the book, but he's always distant. Like, the, he never uses typical terms that would have been familiar of covenant language. Um, but also, even when he gets close, for, for some of the times where he's talking about God giving good gifts and God giving us joy, the very next section it gets consumed by Hevel again. So the tug of war applies to the sovereignty of God as well. Um, what happens here? Verse 5, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb, in the womb of a woman with a child, so you don't know the work of God and makes everything. So again, God's sovereignty, we don't know what he's up to. We can't understand what only God understands. So then we should be waiting for it. Vanity, vanity, everything. Instead, in the morning sow your seed. And at evening withhold not your hand. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Joy. Something has shifted. It doesn't get consumed in hevel again. So what changed? And uh, so I'll just read through the section because I want you to see the whole, like he, he announces rejoice, have joy. So I'll read through the section, but the key is, is 12.1, so be waiting with me on that. So he goes, light is sweet. To find joy in light. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vapor, hevel. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. He's not saying that youth is, is better in some deep sense, but he is acknowledging the reality that, like, receiving and enjoying the gift of life is just easier when you're young because as we age, our bodies will deteriorate. We'll just have less access to easy enjoyment of life. So he's acknowledging that. Um, instead, I think the, the enjoyment of the gift of life, of course it's possible in old age, but has more to do with character and less to do with just your circumstances. And so he's acknowledging that like, hey, right now, start now. Start the discipline of joy now while you're young. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So what he's saying there is, like, I'm not saying stop fearing God. I'm not saying stop obeying him. But, but in some ways, just enjoy the ride, man. Like, don't take yourself so seriously, but take God seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. Take God seriously. You know, walk in the ways of your heart, but... But obey him, fear God, because he's going to bring you into judgment in the end. He will make things right, be on the right side. Remove vexation, remove worry from your heart. Put away pain from your body when able. Youth and the dawn of life are vapor. They're going away. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. We've talked about this before. That word remember is really, really, really important to the Hebrews. It's remember the covenant. Remember what your God has done for you. Remember who your God is. Remember that you are his people. Remember. 
Remember the Exodus. Remember the, the crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, the bringing you into the land. Remember. Remember the relationship. The whole book, God seems distant, and then suddenly he, he drops the remember word, and it's the, this moment where he, he just says, God isn't distant. Yes, he's sovereign, but he's our God. And he is our creator. That I'm, I'm not the creator. I don't get to understand what only God understands. And if I'm trying, I'm off. Like, it, it's almost, it, it's kind of prideful for me to even attempt. Instead, I should just accept humbly that one day I die. And that God is sovereign over all things, and he has given me this brief, fleeting life. Like, do, do you see the beauty in this? Like, are you seeing the, how, how beautiful this book is? So nothing we have, he's acknowledging that like, whatever we have, good or bad, but particularly the good, we can't ultimately say, well, I brought this about on my own. Instead, what happens to joy? What happens to life itself? It's all gift. It is all gift. Like any joy that we have, any pleasure in life, like any, any, any good wisdom, the following and obeying of God in, in the times where we, we, we see the design plan, right? Like we see the way God built the world and nothing disrupts that. We see the goodness of wisdom, gift. Anytime that we have a simple pleasure, like he's, he, he doesn't want us to be hedonists, you know, where it's all me-centered, I need to fill myself with pleasure, but instead, have you ever considered the way that feels you have bad taste in your mouth and you brush your teeth and then it all just goes away? Gift. Like, the simple pleasures of life. Like, something as simple as that, right? It sounds ridiculous, like some of you are laughing like Marsh over there, but like, so it sounds ridiculous, but this is it. He brings up light. When's the last time that we stopped and said, it's light in here? Gift. Like, when we, we, you know, wake up early and we share like a pancake breakfast with, with friends. When, um, like, the, the good type of tired you feel after a good day of work. Like, the, the way that a mug feels when, some, when the coffee was just poured into it and it's piping hot and it's cold outside. Gift. It is all Gift. Is all grace. You can tell that I really like this book. It's going to take a quick moment. Um, we're supposed to see that every single moment that we have a moment of joy, that it is our Father in heaven consciously, intentionally, knowingly giving us a gift that we're supposed to see his hand behind it. And just receive it. Like, do you see how this takes all the pressure off the ordinary? Like, you know, for, for work, like, you know, it'd be easy to, to read a lot of the book and be like, well, fine, why would I even work hard? But when you realize that work is gift, like, then just hit it, man. Like, like work hard. Because it's hevel. But it's also gift. So you see how the word has changed like, he, he has developed the word into something different now, so that vapor isn't bad in and of itself. But instead, every time we receive gift, we see grace. It is unmerited favor, something we didn't bring about.
but instead just given. And it's paradoxical, right? Like if we strive so hard to get the key to life, to try to understand it all, to just get it down, um, we will be frustrated. We will be vexed, vexation, sorrow, hevel. And yet when we step off our pedestal and realize that we're not the creator, we're the created, and have that humility to receive life as gift, there's joy. So what does this look like? Um, one of my favorite authors uh, is Jeffrey Eugenides, um, and he was, uh, he's a novelist. He was asked, like, why, why writing? What, what made you want to... So it took him a long time to get there, to, to be published and all that, and um, he's a very hardworking author. He, like, publishes one book every six years to ten years. Um, but he, he says, when I considered the life of a writer, I saw that in order to be a good one, I had to be alert to life. And a profession where I had to be alert to life just drove me. I love that phrase. Like, that's what Ecclesiastes is calling us to be. We're called to be alert to life. To see gift wherever it comes. And to mourn when it's time to mourn. Because life is still heavy. But there will be moments of joy. So receive those as a gift. So what we see here at the end of Ecclesiastes in, in chapter 12, there's a number of metaphors that are used that are a little dicey. Um, essentially what he's doing is he's poetically describing age, a person aging and then dying. Um, so you, you have this long section of, you know, like rejoice and it's awesome and remember your creator before the days of darkness begin. And so he's slowly bringing down the curtain on the book through all these metaphorical images of aging um, until finally he repeats it again, hevel, hevel, all is hevel. But now the word has changed. And then the, the frame narrator comes in. So there's sort of two, the, the book is constructed with kind of two speakers, you know, same author, but he, he uses this device where the frame narrator comes in to kind of wrap things up um, and he ends with just saying, like, here's the whole thing, man. Like, we can read books all we want, and, and there's goodness in that. But at the end of the day, the whole duty of man, just fear God, do what he says. Um, and he will bring every, every deed into judgment. And we're, we're not supposed to necessarily interact with that fearfully. For that moment, for the people of God, that moment is a moment of hope. Like, hey, life is hevel. The, the preacher's right. Fear God, do what he says, because at the end of this thing, yes, you'll die, but God will make everything right. So the, the, the book ends with this like kind of closing darkness, age, death, and this tiny glimmer of hope. God will make everything right. The preacher didn't know what that would look like. But in the meantime, God wasn't finished giving unmerited, undeserved gifts of grace. He brought a big one about. He gave himself. God becomes man. He gives the ultimate unmerited gift of grace in himself. And see what he does. He comes as the person of Christ, and he begins healing. Sicknesses are going away. He's casting out demons. He's calming storms. He's announcing the kingdom of God and, and saying that, like, it has begun here. 
through the obedience of his people, the kingdom is breaking out now, and it is me. I'm overturning Hebel. I'm turning everything right side up again. The world will perceive it as being upside down, but it's right side up. I'm going to overturn vanity itself. So that hope that the preacher had, it was vague, and he didn't know what it would look like, but things will be made right one day. God will make all things right. And for us, it's, it's, it's still vague, but there's more. Jesus gives it content. He makes it concrete. Jesus gives us this hope to look forward to the new creation and say that, you know, the, the final two chapters of Revelation, that God will make all things right again. Jesus will rule. The hevel of life will be overturned and will be sent out again into the creation, but this time not with toil, but instead to, to work and to play. There will be no hevel to disrupt it. That doesn't mean that we're going to understand it all. In one sense, hevel will remain. We'll never be creators. We'll always be creatures, but without the futility So nothing changes about Ecclesiastes post-Christ. You see that? Life is vanity. God is sovereign and gracious. We've seen Jesus now. God is sovereign and gracious. And life is gift. So in the vanity of life, rejoice and remember your creator. Rejoice and remember your creator. And I hope that I've gotten across how liberating this is. You know, just to share a last story in closing, I just think this book has so much power to, to free us, um, to hear what God has said through it. Um, in early August, I did a, a class at Trinity on the Wisdom Lit. I was being a very good student and only interacting with the content on an intellectual level. Um, but this, this adjunct prof shared on Ecclesiastes, and I was like, hmm, okay, I'm going to track with this. Um, it apparently got into me. because So I went home, and uh, I don't know, it was just this day where um, I got home, and Edmund was, I could hear him laughing outside the door, and walked in, and um, Ashley was smiling, and Lydia was playing. Um, just, it was a happy home. And almost as soon as I walked in, just this downpour started outside. Just, like, borderline torrential rain. I mean, just, you know, the, this perfect summer shower. Um, and, uh, and Ashley said, I, I, I want to go out in it with him. So I was like, okay. And so I grabbed Lydia and opened the door outside of, to the outside of our complex and actually grabbed Edmund and ran outside and I stood with Lydia under the awning so she wouldn't get wet. And, um, and then Ashley and Edmund were splashing in, sorry, crud. Um, but they were just splashing in, in the puddles and you know, opening their mouths to catch the rain and, um, and spinning around and dancing. <laughs> I was just moved to tears. Like, this book just snuck up on me, man. Like, just moved to tears standing up under the awning because it was all gift. Like, I, I, I wasn't looking for that moment to make sense of the world for me. It was just a gift. It was just a gift. And our Creator does that every single day. Now let's be alert to life. Let's be alert to life. Like we of all people have reason to. The people who know Jesus. 
the one who came feasting, eating and drinking, laughing with sinners. Let's be alert to life. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you, and we just thank you for creating a good world. And we lament the pain of sin that has made it crooked. But you came to make straight what has been bent. We love you, Lord. Amen.